welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio, and today we're talking about the readings for the Easter Vigil, April 11th, 2020. In our episode today, we explore the resurrection account from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, writing arguably to a Jewish audience, begins his gospel by emphasizing that Jesus rises on a Sunday. What is the significance of a Sunday resurrection for the Jews? Later in the gospel, Jesus refers to the disciples as his brethren, a likely reference to Psalm 22, a psalm that is a clear prophecy of Christ's passion, but one that at the end turns to passionate exclamations of victory. He has risen, friends, just as he said. Happy Easter! We made it. Uh, today we're looking at the readings for... Um, well, the readings for Easter, I spent a lot of time trying to decide what reading to actually dive into because um, the church is all about um, is all about abundance for Easter, including the options for gospel readings. Um, so if you look at uh, at mass during the day on on Easter Sunday, there's three different options of of gospel readings. Um, and I feel like I heard at one point that um, there's even different mass readings for mass at dawn, but I could be mistaken about that. What I decided to do, because I had this plethora of options of mass readings to choose from for Easter, because again, the church is all about abundance, including readings for mass for Easter. So I decided to go with the Easter Vigil Gospel, in part because that's the first gospel that's proclaimed for Easter, the Easter Vigil Gospel, but also because there's just one option. Um, and we're, we're going to cycle through different options um, through the years. You know, hopefully we'll still be doing this podcast next year and the year after that. And so this year, as you can maybe guess... The gospel reading at the Easter Vigil is from Matthew because we are reading through the gospel of Matthew in year A. Next year, the gospel will be from Mark. And the year after that, the gospel will be from Luke. Okay. So the gospel that I chose to explore with you today for Easter is the gospel for Easter Vigil. And that is from Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came to him, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, where they will see me. 
Matthew 28 verses 1 through 10. Beautiful, beautiful. Every single gospel reading about the resurrection is fantastic. So we're going to dive into Matthew here and what Matthew wants to draw out for us because each of the gospels is a little bit different, not different, like contradictory, but just has a different flair flavor to them. So we want to bring out the flavor that Matthew wants to give us of Jesus's resurrection account. And so we begin at the very beginning of our reading of verse one of chapter 20, 28. Uh, now after the Sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the sepulcher. We can ask ourselves, what are they going to do? There might be a sense in which they're going to uh, just to pay their respects. And, and there's a, there's some, some possibility there, but I think we here, we want to bring in Mark. Mark chapter 16, verse one tells us that they came and they came with spices. And so there's this idea that they're going to complete the burial rites Uh, I've been doing a webinar a handful of times the last week, Jesus in Jerusalem, the geography of Holy Week. And towards the end of that webinar, I look at uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher and show you what Jesus's tomb would have looked like in the first century. And Jesus was not laid in an actual burial niche. He was laid on what would be called a preparation table. And so this tells us, or this confirms for us, many of the details in the Gospels that Jesus was taken down from the cross in haste and buried in haste because his burial was not complete. He was not actually placed in the burial niche. He was just left on the preparation day because the uh, the women and Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus they were racing the sun. They had to they had to get Jesus buried before the sun went down and the Sabbath started. And so what Mary Magdalene and Mary are coming to do is to finish that burial. But as we know, they don't, they don't even have to, they don't even have to let's back up even more. Cause that's the second part of this first verse. Matthew goes through the details of setting the scene uh, by placing us in the day of the week after the Sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week. Now, what was the first day of the week? The first day of the week was Sunday. Now, when we think about the Jewish week and Jewish timing and the importance, the varying importance of days of the week, in the Jewish calendar, we tend to focus on Saturday, perhaps, because Saturday was the Sabbath. I mean, Matthew tells us it was after the Sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week. And so we tend to focus on Saturday as being the most important day for the Jewish people. And and that's correct in many ways. And why was Saturday considered the Sabbath? Why was the seventh day of the week so important? Precisely because In the book of Genesis, in the creation account, it's on the seventh day that God rests. And so man participates in that rest of the seventh day as well. But if we see Matthew's introduction, if we continue to look at it through the eyes of the book of Genesis that was so important to the Jewish people, and Matthew is arguably writing to the Jewish people, that's arguably his audience, what would have been the significance of the first day of the week? 
Well, if Saturday is significant because it's the seventh day of the week, which is the day on which God rested, Sunday, the first day of the week, is the day on which God began creation. And so on this first day of the week, Sunday, God begins creation again. He begins his new creation. This is where we get this idea, actually, of the eighth day. Maybe you've heard this before. It's it's a beautiful concept because there's not really, there's not technically an eighth day. And so even just by calling the day of the resurrection, the eighth day, you're already uh, alluding to this idea of, of a new world order, right? It's awesome. A new world order. And this new world order is so because of its new creation that Jesus is instituting, that God is instituting on the day he rises from the dead. He is the first fruits of creation, right? He is, he's the first fruits of this new creation, which is the resurrection. And and first fruits is important here because uh, we're going to see at the end here, I want to quote some of Pope Benedict uh, commenting on the resurrection. His resurrection is the promise of our resurrection. And as St. Paul says, and Pope Benedict quotes, if we don't rise from the dead, then it's meaningless. It's meaningless if he doesn't rise from the dead, but it's also meaningless if we don't rise from the dead. I'm getting ahead of myself. But Matthew goes through the great lengths of here in the first verse of chapter 28 of showing us that Jesus rises from the dead on the first day of the week, which is the first day of creation, because what he is initiating is a new creation and a new world order, the eighth day. And it's initiated for Mary Magdalene and the other Mary watching this as witnesses to this great day. It's initiating, it's initiated for them uh, by their beholding this angel. So we have this great, uh, we have this great sort of theophany, uh, this manifestation of God through his angel where he, there's this great earthquake and he descends from heaven and rolls back the stone and sits upon it. We, we get kind of used to theophanies and angelic appearances reading through the Bible because they crop up all the time, but we must remind ourselves no other time in Jesus's public ministry has his uh, work been accompanied by angelic appearances, right? I mean, we can argue the transfiguration perhaps because Moses and Elijah appear with him, but that was specific to the the three, right? Peter, James, and John. And it's not angels that appear, right? And so here we have this great manifestation. Already we see that the world order that Jesus is, the new world order that Jesus is instituting is different. And Jesus doesn't hold back his divinity or veil his divinity in the way that he did before. He is risen and he allows his people to see this. He allows the people to see his great power, which for his disciples comes, brings with it great joy. 
So Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they're walking to the tomb and all of a sudden they feel this great earthquake. I'm from California. I know what earthquakes feel like. They get your attention, right? They definitely get your attention. And you have a moment where you realize I am nothing and I could die right now. So they experience this great earthquake. And as they're feeling this earthquake, the ground is shaking beneath them. They see an angel descend from heaven. He looks like lightning and his raiment is white as snow. And he comes down to the tomb and rolls back the stone and sits upon it. And how do they react? Well, before we even hear the women's reaction, Matthew sort of pans to uh, the guards because remember Pontius Pilate allowed guards to be stationed at our Lord's tomb to prevent the body from being stolen because there was this talk of Jesus rising from the dead. So the guards are still present when the angel appears and rolls back the stone. And how do the guards react to this experience? They tremble and become like dead men. They're so afraid that they just are paralyzed with fear, quite literally paralyzed with fear. We have to remind ourselves that, um, uh, no, (laughs) no offense if anybody is in this profession, but we're not talking about like a -a rent-a-cop here, right? We're talking about hardened Roman soldiers, possibly ones that had even witnessed the horror of Jesus's death just some hours before, right? Some days before. These are hardened men who are completely paralyzed by fear with this angelic manifestation, this this sort of theophany. And what is Mary Magdalene and the other Mary's reaction Fear as well, right? How do we know that? Well, because what does the angel say to them? Do not be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. I love, uh, it's easy to gloss over, but I love thinking about the angel's experience of Easter Sunday. See, they were witness to our Lord's suffering, his passion, his death, his burial. They were witnesses to it in many ways, just like us. I mean, angels are very different from us, right? But at the same time, they were witnesses to this experience. And so what joy this angel has to be able to come down from heaven and roll back the stone and announce the joy of the resurrection to these two women who follow him. We don't, we don't often think of angels as brimming with joy, but if this is a great occasion for joy for us, imagine the occasion for joy for the angels. Don't be afraid. I know something. I know that you seek Jesus and I know that he was crucified, but I'm telling you something. Listen to me. He's not here. He's risen. He's risen. Uh, in the, the translation I initially read, which is the new revised standard version, it says he has been raised here. Just the revised standard version says he has risen um, it is a passive, so you might say that it's more correct to say he has been raised, but I love the kind of 
the kind of nuance between the two. He has risen and he has been raised because in one sense, when we look at the passive, he has been raised. There's this idea that his father has raised him up. His father has taken care of him. He knows that Jesus has fulfilled all things and been completely obedient in his sonship. And so he has raised him. But I love the nuance of also translating it as he has risen because there's also this sense of Jesus raises himself by his own power as well. Why? Because he and the father are one and their power is one and their will is one. And so Jesus is both raised and rises himself. And so there's this, this beautiful, in this little nuance of translation, there's this beautiful, this beautiful sense of how Jesus and the father, Jesus and the Trinity, they are one so that he has both risen and he has been raised. And then these next three words are some of my favorite in the entire gospel. He is not here for he has risen as he said as he said those are three of some of the most important words ever announced to mankind why Re- rewind with me all the way to the beginning of the story in the garden of eden and what is satan what is the serpent tell Adam and Eve, did God really say that you would die if you eat the fruit? See, what started this entire ball rolling is Satan putting doubt in the minds and the hearts of our first parents over whether God is trustworthy. And everything else that God does in salvation history is to prove for us as a great father, as a great lover, that he is true to his word. And here the angel proclaims that great joy. He is not here for he has risen as he said. As he said, as he proclaimed over and over again. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, we have six different times where Jesus predicts his resurrection Matthew chapter 12 verse 40, Matthew chapter 16 verse 21, Matthew chapter 17 verse 9, again Matthew chapter 17 verse 23, and finally Matthew chapter 20 verse 19. He predicts his resurrection. And here we have it. Jesus, always, always true to his word. He is not here for he has risen as he said. I would urge you to spend time meditating upon this truth and recognizing, consider this. You can even make these three words uh, kind of the core of an examination of conscience that you do. Because in our sinfulness, if we're true to ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, we'll recognize that our sinfulness is most often rooted in this idea that what he said is not really how it is. What he asks of us is not really what's best for us. 
what he recommends in the moral life or really requires of us. And here, here, I'm going to make this distinction, right? It sounds nicer for someone to recommend to us a certain moral life than for someone to require of us a certain moral life. But if what St. Thomas Aquinas says is true, that to love another is to will the good of the other, he has to require a certain moral life from us because he more than anyone else knows what is good for us and knows what will make us happy to merely recommend it is not to truly love us. He has to require it eight of us. But, but see, his love goes so deep. He looks at us in pity in our sinfulness and understands this is so hard. It is so hard for us to live his commands. Why? Because we are sinful. And so he comes and he takes on the whole moral life and all of the suffering associated with, with evil, whether it's moral evil or ontological evil, like physical evil. He takes it all upon himself and he allows himself to be consumed by it, to give himself over to suffering and death, to to bring forth the fountain of grace. And it's grace in God's great mercy that he gives us so that we can indeed follow him along the path to happiness. He is not here. He has risen as he said. Our Lord is always true to his word. If he says that something will make you happy, it will. It will. Come, the angel says, see the place where he lay. And I love this because since we're dealing with Jesus now in his glorified resurrected body, and we're seeing angels now in the gospels, it can become easy to kind of separate ourselves from the physical world. Now, in order to prevent that, we have to really put ourselves in the place of the, uh, the women here and the apostles, the disciples, because they're still very aware of their, their physicality, their materialness, their, their humanness, right? They just felt the earth shake, even though in the same, with the same, uh, with the same, uh, senses, they also see the, the angels. So there's the spiritual and the material and the angel knows this. And so it, he, he wants them to to recognize with their very eyes and their senses that, that what he is saying must not just be taken on faith. It can be taken, uh, it can be taken on sight, on touch, almost scientifically. Some people will shrink when I say that because they'll say, Katie, people can't come back from the dead. But I say to you, How do you know that? Because you've never seen it before. But what if you see it happen? Either your eyes deceive you or it's true. And so what the gospels tell us is what the followers of Jesus, what what his disciples, they tell us what what they saw. And so the angel knowing this invites them into the tomb. Come see the place where he lay. He's not there anymore. See that it's empty. 
see with your eyes. And after they see, the angel tells them, go quickly though. Tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Lo, I have told you. I have told you so. So the angel gives instruction to the women to go find the other disciples, arguably the the 11, and to tell them the good news that Jesus has risen and to give them the instruction to go to Galilee. So Jesus is going to meet them in Galilee where everything started, right? Where, where they were first called to follow him. And we're going to read an Acts in the, of the Apostles in the next few weeks as we start going through this, that Jesus is again going to teach them in Galilee as, as a risen man, as the resurrected Lord. So at verse 8, it tells us, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. I love that because it shows this kind of, this kind of tension, but this, this joyful tension between, between uh, the creatureliness of who we are. See, uh, God would not be who he is and would not be revealing himself to us without causing a little bit of fear because we're experiencing something so profound that it, it makes you jittery a little bit, right? So they have this, this, this jitteriness, this fear, but also this great joy, this great joy in the resurrection. And they run to tell the disciples and on the way, as if their day cannot get any better, behold, Jesus met them and says, hail, hello, right? <laughs> we get, uh, we get used to this word as, as being so, uh, fancy, right? Hail. Hello. It's, it's just a common day greeting. Hello. They came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. Again, Jesus allowing them to confirm with their senses what they have seen and heard. He allows them to take hold of his feet, to actually feel him, to see that he's not just, he's not just a ghost and he's not just a spirit or a disembodied spirit. He is actually himself raised from the dead. And they have the perfect reaction that we all ought to have to the risen Lord. They worship him. They hold on to him and they worship him. Then Jesus says, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and they will see me. So again, he confirms the message of the angel. Jesus in his great tenderness, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Astute readers of the Bible, biblical scholars, theologians have pointed out that the language here that Jesus used kind of reminds us of Psalm 22, which is extremely fitting. It's extremely fitting. Why? Well, because Psalm 22 is, is clearly a prophecy of Jesus's crucifixion and death, right? So Psalm 22 is what Jesus quotes on the cross. Some people don't realize this, but Psalm 22 verse one begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so when Jesus quotes that, he's, he's saying that, he's crying that out. 
and great suffering and difficulty, but he, what he's really doing is, is calling to mind the entire Psalm 22. And as you read through Psalm 22, we get reminders of our liturgy of Good Friday. And we see how it's an unbelievable prophecy of, of Jesus's uh, crucifixion and death. Uh, verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Verse 20 or verse 16, dogs are round about me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my raiment. They cast lots. Now, often when we associate Psalm 22 with the passion, we kind of stop there at verse 18, especially because verse 17 and 18, well, verse 16, 17, and 18 are such clear prophecies of Jesus's crucifixion and death. They pierce my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They divide my garments among them and for my raiment, they cast lots. But the Psalm keeps going. And if you keep reading the psalm, you recognize that it has a twist. It has a change to it. So if we keep reading at verse 19, we hear, But thou, O Lord, be not far off. O thou, my help, hasten to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, my afflicted soul from the horns of the wild oxen. And here at verse 22 of Psalm 22, we get this beautiful phrase. I will tell of thy name to my brethren. I will tell of thy name to my brethren. It's not typical for Jesus to refer to his followers as his brethren. And so is he alluding to something here when he says, go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee? In the context of Psalm 22, I believe the answer is affirmative. I will tell of thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise thee. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you sons of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you sons of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hid his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From thee comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear me. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nation shall worship before him. For the dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Yea, to him shall all the proud of the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, and he who cannot keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. Men shall tell of the Lord to the coming generation and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn that he has wrought it. That is how Psalm 22 ends. Men shall tell of the Lord to the coming generation 
and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, that he has wrought it. Is this not more true than at the Easter Vigil? When we, when we read seven different Old Testament readings that foretell all of salvation history, and when these readings and this theology and this gospel has been passed down from generation to generation to generation for 2,000 years, indeed, men shall tell of the Lord to the coming generation and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn. That is us, my friends. That is us. If that's not enough, the author of the letter to the Hebrews brings in this idea. He actually quotes uh, this verse 22 of Psalm 22 in the second chapter of the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, We'll start at verse nine. We see Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have all one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. I will praise you. This idea, the letter to the Hebrews is full of this idea of of Jesus as the great high priest who lays down his life to, to bring sanctification in the world, to sanctify us. I love this, this, this beauty of this idea of, of, uh, of, of, of Jesus by the grace of God, tasting death for everyone, tasting death for everyone. If he has tasted a death, he has tasted all of our deaths in his own death. Then his resurrection is not just for himself, but it's for all of us. First Corinthians 15, 14 If Christ had not been raised, then your faith is in vain. But if we continue reading, Paul makes the assertion that if we are not raised, Christ's resurrection is also in vain. And as I promised, I want to bring in Pope Benedict XVI here because he adds to this idea of the resurrection. In fact, he says that in some ways we don't take the resurrection as seriously as we should. He says in the resurrection, there is a life that opens up a new dimension of human existence. In the resurrection, there is a life that opens up a new dimension of human existence. One that constitutes a sort of evolutionary leap. The resurrection opens up a new dimension of human existence that constitutes a sort of evolutionary leap in Jesus's resurrection. Pope Benedict says a new possibility of human existence is attained that affects everyone. And that opens up a future, a new kind of future for mankind. If the dead are not raised, 
then Christ has not been raised. That's the continuing of 1 Corinthians 15. So if Christ is not raised, then our faith is in vain. But Paul also says, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And Pope Benedict says, why does Paul assert this? Because Christ's resurrection is either a universal event or it is nothing. It is either a universal event or it is nothing. See, Jesus's resurrection is not simply about him overcoming all of the insult, finally kind of getting tired of people not listening to him and just showing forth his power. No, because that would be an, uh, that would be an egotistical Jesus that, that is, is not Jesus. His resurrection shows forth his power, but his resurrection is for us. Everything is for us. When will we realize that? When, when will we get that through our head? That we don't have a selfish God. Our, our God is not like the, the gods of the Greeks or the Romans, right? Everything is for us. I think of the, I think of the parable of the prodigal son and the older brother who is angry. And he says to his father, all these years I have been faithful to you and never once you have given me a goat to share with my friends. And the father's answer is one of my, my favorite things ever in scripture. He says, my son, you are with me always. And everything I have is yours. When will we recognize everything he does is for us? Only if we understand the resurrection as a universal event, as the opening up of a new dimension of human existence, are we on the way toward any kind of correct understanding of the New Testament resurrection testimony. Only if we understand it as a universal event, as the opening up of a new dimension of human existence, are we really on the way to understanding the resurrection? Jesus's resurrection is not simply about sticking it to the man at the end of the day or winning the soccer match so that all of us Christians on one side of the stadium can roar with cheers, right? His resurrection is about our resurrection and opening up a new dimension of human existence, one in which there is no suffering, there is no death, there's perfect happiness once and for all with our Lord Jesus Christ. He is risen, my friends. Happy Easter. Happy Easter.